Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. The history of the space age is often told as a story of science and geopolitics, of Cold War competition and cutting-edge technology, but it was also a religious story, a secular project that doubled as a sacred quest. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Catherine Newell talks about the religious roots of the final frontier, especially in the collaboration of artist Chesley Bonestell and the NASA rocket engineer Werner von Braun. Newell is an assistant professor of religion and science at the University of Miami. She's the author of Destined for the Stars, Faith, the Future, and America's Final Frontier. Catherine Newell, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Chesley Bonestell is a big figure in your book. He grew up in San Francisco. He was fascinated in astronomy, also fascinated by art and was trained in San Francisco. He has kind of an incredible story. He lives through the San Francisco earthquake, moves to New York, does more artwork there, eventually starts doing background art in Hollywood for movies like Citizen Kane. And in the late 30s, where you really pick up his story in depth, he starts working on a series of paintings about uh, Saturn and its moons. These are really incredible paintings, by the way. The plates in your book are beautiful. I was wondering what the significance of these paintings are to your project. Well, I think I often describe them as kind of a way into talking about this idea of how religion and science are conjoined. That's sort of the big, big, big picture. But I think at the kind of closer level, they're just sort of fabulous, literal illustration of how we think about our place in the universe. I mean, to me, I don't know if they were to Bonestell, but to me, they're just just something so spiritual. And there's so much faith imbued with the idea that at some point, we will stand on the surface of one of Saturn's moons and look out across this 
wasteland towards this other, this beautiful planet hovering in the distance. And I don't know, I just, I was fascinated that he painted them in 1943 with what was known about Saturn's moons at the time, which was that they didn't know that there was many more than nine, but at the time Hmm. thought that there were only nine, but that he kind of cobbled together uh, his training as an architect, as a map painter, as an artist, uh, all of his knowledge of American art and turned out just these absolutely luminescent, sublime images of Saturn that just became so popular. Can you actually describe some of the details of these paintings? Yeah. So you mentioned Citizen Kane, and I talk a little bit more about it in the book, but that was one of the first movies that Bonestell worked on when he got to Hollywood. And what he really, he was one of, uh, I think, three artists who worked on the film. And what really struck him about uh, Orson Welles' technique was that he began with this kind of what we call today, or what was called at the time, a photo montage, where if you remember the opening to Citizen Kane, we're sort of standing outside the gates, Xanadu. Yeah. And then we sort of fade through the gates, and then we're in the garden, we fade again, and we keep fading. Each time we fade, we get closer to the castle itself. And what Bonestell liked about that effect was that you could illustrate a journey. And he'd been in a kind of non-academic astronomer, very interested in astronomy since he was about 16, 17 years old. And he created his first painting of Saturn when he was still in his teens. But for the next 30, 40 years, his encounters with images of Saturn were that they were just these kind of stale, scientific, or wildly fantastic and wrong (laughs) images So what he set out to create was something that was more along this idea of a photo montage of taking a journey. So he began on what at the time was thought to be Saturn's furthest moon, Yaptis, and sort of hopped from moon to moon to get closer and closer to the planet. And in each image, Saturn gets a little bit bigger on the horizon. And we actually end, the last painting is standing on the surface of Saturn, if such a thing were possible, and looking up through the rings. So he wanted to sort of recreate that Hollywood effect with his images of taking a journey to the planet Saturn. You say that the influences on Bonestell are pretty interesting. At one level, they reflect this kind of heightened interest in astronomy and popular access to astronomy. And at this other level, they also link to a much older genre of landscape paintings from the Hudson River School with painters like Thomas Moran. Could you explain the links? Sure. Well, Bonestell's actually been called, not by me, by uh, others, the, the last Hudson River School artist, huh. because he, I don't want to say borrowed, he sort of created an homage to the techniques that the Hudson River School artists, beginning with Thomas Cole in the 1830s, used in their landscape images of, uh, at first, the areas on the east coast of the United States. And as the country moved further west, the artists went further west as well. And they created these physically huge images of the areas in the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevada, the Yellowstone and Yosemite, uh, South America, Niagara. I don't know if anybody listening has been to the Smithsonian, but 
Frederick Church's image of Niagara Falls is something yeah. like almost 11 feet it's amazing. long. And uh, yeah, Thomas Moran kind of famous, famously did some of the same things with his images of uh, the Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon. But there were these huge, again, we could use the word cinematic, even though it's acronistic, but uh, very large and very true to life that they were trying to illustrate, again, the sublime, the beauty, the uh, inordinacy of the creation and the wildness of nature, but also keep as accurate scientifically as they could. And I actually just found out recently that when they've tested some of Thomas Moran's paintings, they found that he actually used local uh, minerals to get some of the colors right mm. in like his images of the Grand Canyon, his image of the Grand Canyon that he wanted to make sure it was accurate. So that's where he got some of his colors. But so these huge landscape paintings that Bonacel was kind of uh, recreating in a way, but on other planets. These paintings are really incredible and sublime, but they also play a big role in the kind of vision of, of the country. And by the 1850s, 1860s, a vision of the West. Most kids in school learn terms mm -hmm. like manifest destiny, but I think they attach that oftentimes to a kind of geopolitical purpose, you know, the conquest of the West. You push this idea that there's really a, a deeper faith foundation to these ideas. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure. So Manifest Destiny is, of course, a very, as you say, geopolitical argument for expansion, the argument for the Mexican-American War, uh, the argument for some very ugly moments in our collective past of uh, eradicating groups of people that were already in this quote-unquote unexplored American West. But at the base of what was meant by this idea of destiny really connects very, I think, clearly and theologically back to the quote-unquote errand into the wilderness of the pilgrims and then the Puritans who were themselves religious refugees coming from Europe, coming from England and Holland, uh, who believed very profoundly that they had a mission from God to establish a new world, a new, excuse mm. me, a new Israel in the new world. They called themselves the new Canaan. They wrote extensively about how much they were like their own uh, mission was like that of Moses and the Israelites in the desert and what kind of kinship they felt with them. And a lot of that rhetoric was picked up again, both pre and post civil war and sort of used for the similar purpose of working everybody's gumption up to go West, but also to attach to it this kind of, you know, this isn't just some arbitrary takeover of unsettled lands and all these things. This is something that we were chosen by God to do. And mm. those are two very different messages. So, And you see, you see it a lot in the, um, these, these little tiny human figures that are placed around the edges of Moran's landscapes and, and also Bonestell's, um, this sense that they're looking at this landscape that they're about to, um, cultivate. Cultivate and explore. And that's, uh, I love, I think I draw, try to draw 
a connection between a couple of Moran's images of his famous image of the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, which is another enormous painting in the Smithsonian, something like seven or eight feet across Mm. and sort of standing on the precipice, looking out across the famous image of the Yellowstone river pouring into the Canyon. There are these two tiny figures of uh, Frederick Hayden church, the leader of their uh, exploratory group and his native American guide. And they're sort of dwarfed by this huge landscape around them. And then Bonestell does some very similar things with even back to his first Saturn paintings of these tiny little figures exploring the surface of Mimas, you know, this huge planet in the background. And there are these tiny figures in the foreground and these pretty, I think, futuristic looking uh, spacesuits to sort of exploring the land around them and exclaiming over what they see and yeah, there's actually a plate in your book, Theophilus, mm-hmm. the crater on the moon that uh, Bonestell paints in for his 1944 series in Life magazine. And it reminds me so much of that uh, Frederick Church mm-hmm. painting of Niagara. You have to kind of look really hard mm-hmm. for these tiny little humans in the foreground. Yes. Uh, in this case, astronauts. Yes. I think this was even before... We called them astronauts, that they were still just kind of space explorers. Mm. And yeah, you have to kind of, I think the first time I looked at that image, I was like, oh, there are no humans. Oh, wait, there they yeah. are. I'm <laughs> yeah. really excited. That's not anything what the moon looks like, but that's a really cool picture with those guys up there looking around. And uh, in uh, the 1940s, after Bonestell gains fame for these incredible plates that are get published in Life magazine, he begins a collaboration with Willie Lay, who is a German rocket expert and science writer. What's the nature of their collaboration? They, I think we're just, I, this is me completely reading into their relationship via mm. their letters and their uh, the work they did together, but they were sort of, in a way, kind of missing puzzle pieces that uh, Bonestell knew that he was an artist and had uh, the training to represent the scientific in very artistically and aesthetically pleasing ways, but he knew he couldn't write. Mm. And Willie Lay was an incredibly talented journalist. He just had that gift that I think we take for granted today of somebody who can make very difficult ideas quite clear and easy to follow. So the German, the German expat was actually um, hired on to write the stuff that the American painter couldn't write. Yeah, well, so their first collaboration was an article in Mechanics Illustrated that uh, Willie Lay had been in the U.S. for, I think, over a decade at this point, mm. and he left Germany, as many did in 1933. And he knew a lot about a lot of things, but what he knew the most about was probably rockets. But when he got to the U.S., nobody was very interested in rockets until Germany started firing them at uh, various sites in and around Europe during World War yeah, II. British cities. And suddenly he was very in demand. And one of the magazines that this was actually after World War II, but one of the magazines that asked for a sort of overview of the history of rocketry and maybe a look to the future was Mechanics Illustrated. And because it is Mechanics Illustrated, they needed an illustrator. And so they asked Bonestell to collaborate with Willie Lay and Uh, As it turns out, they were just really well-suited to one another. They worked very well together, despite being on opposite coasts for 
most of the time that they were working together. And I would argue they were extremely successful at what they did. Their uh, claim to fame was the book, The Conquest of Space in 1949. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about the importance of that text? Well, The Conquest of Space came, again, at a time when there was no shortage of, say, books about outer space that were either dry and scientific or veering off into the fantastical, into science fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were lots of illustrations of say, again, Saturn, but they usually had purple tentacled aliens as a feature in them, so they weren't exactly accurate. Uh, So what Lane Bonestell decided to do was take all of this information about our solar system to illustrate it and to explain it in a way that was accessible to, say, the average American teenager or youth of some kind and make it just a kind of journey around the solar system by rocket. So it starts with a chapter on the origins of rocketry, and then uh, we kind of slingshot ourselves by stopping on the moon out to Mercury and then to Venus and sort of take this tour of the solar system and lay rights about what we find on each planet and the history of its discovery and the great ages of astronomic discovery in human history. And uh, it comes with all of these fabulous illustrations by Bonestell of rockets leaving the Earth's atmosphere and explorers on the surface of Mars and all of these. It's sort of a true life scientific adventure that was just completely different from if you look at any of the other books published in the couple years before and after that were either kind of adamantly scientific or not accurate at all. So yeah. theirs is very fun. You you mentioned uh, in what you just said, you mentioned that this work that they were working on was a bit different from the kind of fantastical stuff that was being published in the science fiction genre. And I was wondering how you distinguish between these different things. I think the links that you make to the artwork of Bonestell, it's, it is so clear his influences to this earlier work and and the influence of, of let's say, ideas of faith in the, in the work of the Hudson River School. At the same time, there's also just this huge industry of publishing scientific romances, for example, in the late mm-hmm. 1800s or even in the 30s, you know, these wild, fantastical stories. Do you see those as also emanating out of a kind of I don't know, a kind of manifest destiny idea, or or do you see this as a different influence altogether? I would say that just thinking about Willie Lay's perspective on things, that it's sort of a universal human curiosity that we've always been curious about what's over that next hill, what's across that ocean, what's happening on the surface of that planet that we can see every night and Sometimes it's, uh, as in the story of the moon hoax of the 1870s, I'm forgetting the exact date, but of there being huge cities with flying bat-like creatures on the surface of the moon to just a genuine curiosity about, well, what does it actually look like? Are there mountains? Are they hills? What's out there? What can we see? Is it different from us? Is it the same as us? How can we know what what we know and that was what motivated Willie Lay was just a kind of unending 
desire to explore and to know and to see. And that's what comes through, I think, in uh, especially mm-hmm. his work with Bonestell. And in the 50s, both men begin working with Werner von Braun, the uh, famous German aerospace engineer who eventually ends up working for NASA after the war and becomes the chief architect for, I think, the Saturn V. Mm-hmm. What was the nature of their work together? Well, von Braun and Ley had actually met many years before, back in the 1920s, when uh, well before the rise of Hitler to power, uh, when they both belonged to the same rocketry group in Germany. And uh, this group was sort of trying to, as much as they could, build a rocket, any kind of rocket, again, more out of kind of fundamental curiosity than anything else than wanting to create firepower. But von Braun was always had his sights focused on reaching outer space. And this is a much longer story, but uh, eventually he and Willie Lay found themselves both here in the U.S. And by that time, in the early 1950s, when they were reunited, Lay and Bonestell were pretty much of a team. And uh, Bonestell met Von Braun separately and then discovered that Willie Lay had kind of mentored him many years before. And the three of them sort of threw themselves in together on this project of proselytizing about space exploration. Mm. You know, your book is really interesting. It tells the story of, I should, I should frame it this way. You begin your story with an artist who's working on representations of space landscapes that no one's ever seen. And you connect it to these really big questions really big history questions and offer a new look on it. In particular, I think what's really interesting to me is that you say that, you know, the idea of space as a frontier is not a natural thing. It was actually invented. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Well, I would say that if we think about it logically, uh, exploring space is fundamentally illogical (laughs) that we... yeah definitely evolved on and evolved with our happy little watery planet that we live on. And as far as where we are most comfortable, I would argue that it's this planet, but there's this kind of, again, insatiable curiosity about and thirst to explore these other places that just, again, defies all logic. It doesn't make a ton of sense to think about wanting to build a settlement on the moon or spend a year or two on the surface of Mars. But it's like, we just can't stop pushing ourselves outward. And then, and then you have people like Von Brown who felt very profoundly that this was something that we were called by God to do, that our ability to build rockets and to reach the furthest ends of our solar system, something that was demanded of us by a higher power. So, Yeah, I also thought it was provocative and interesting that you say it's seen as kind of commonly accepted in many quarters that the United States became very interested in the space race for geopolitical reasons after the launch of Sputnik during the International Geophysical Year. 
And you say, no, that's actually not the case at all. This kind of um, drive to go into space, explore space, maybe colonize space is connected to these to these older things. Mm -hmm. So I had a question about this. I totally see, I think you make the case very persuasively that the this artwork and these individuals are are connected to earlier genres and to questions of faith. I was wondering though, do you see this as a kind of an American story of faith? Because I was thinking two of your protagonists, you know, Willie Lay and Werner von Braun are German and they're coming to their interest of, in space from very different cultural contexts. Do you see these as connected or or different? I don't know that I see it as necessarily fundamentally American, but I think there was and has been something particularly fascinating about the American frontier. And so uh, I didn't have time to get too far into it, but there's actually a long history uh, dating back to the 19th century in German literature of American Westerns about Germans who leave Germany and go out American, the Yankees out in the Western frontier, and that they're just well suited to this uh, rough life. So this idea of the frontier is also embedded in some ways in German nationalist idea of the self as well that I think is fascinating. But uh, I do in some ways think that some of these religious elements are uniquely American because America is religiously so unique that we have this tremendous yeah. religious marketplace. We have the laws stating that there shall be no establishment of religion and that everybody is free to practice whatever religion they behooves them and that this has led to this flourishing of many, many, many different religions and religious cultures. And that uh, I think some of that surely had to have an effect on bringing so many people together to agree to say, build a spaceship that will get to the moon. That I think those two yeah. are in many ways fundamentally related, not to say that other countries couldn't do it as well, but there's just something about this kind of open market of religion in America that I think was a large influence on how people perceived the mission to reach the moon and moon and beyond. And when you use the word religion um, in the book, you say that one of the problems of the way we tell this story of science and its connections to religion is that the, these concepts are so, both of them actually, uh, religion and science are so oversimplified. You, you write that religion is, quote, shrunk and stuffed into black boxes reduced to a particulate concept designed by detractors. So what do you see as the religious, I guess the question is, how does religion operate as an idea in your story? Well, one thing I wanted to sort of poke at was the sort of universal acceptance of these sort of straw men versions mm. of religion and science. So I think I say that the same thing kind of happens to science in some of these science versus religion debates, that both religion and science are sort of shrunk down to these entities unto themselves, rather than thought of as the outcome of human thought, philosophy, behavior, research, curiosity. Essentially, the kind of human element of them is strained out, and they're sort of set aside as something unto themselves. And so I think partly at least what I was trying to do 
was say, no, there's still, we can't just talk about religion and science without talking about how people live with them and imagine them and use them, the kind of lived aspects of both of these philosophies, ideas, histories. Hmm. They're something that fundamentally comes from us and they're part of who we are. And I think we very much get into trouble when we sort of set one or the other aside and say, no, it, it's, it exists ex nihilo. It exists without us and despite yeah. us that uh, I think you miss a lot of the ways in which they are mutually harmful, but also mutually beneficial. I really appreciated this part in your book where you talked about the way that this conflict between religion and science how it's really a straw man and it's it's grown up from the late 19th century work of uh, John Draper and other people and really carried forward to the work of Richard Dawkins this idea that the, you have these two entities at war with each other and what what I really liked about that was I did my graduate work in a history of science program at Wisconsin and a number of the professors there had come and graduate students had come from religious backgrounds mm-hmm. and had become at some point in their career secular, either secular humanists or secular scientists, and then just uh, took on this work as a kind of fascination. There were a number of professors there, uh, Ron Numbers mm. and others who who work on religion and science. And I also came to this field from a very devout uh, Catholic background when I was younger. And I was wondering if there, if there was a similar kind of path for you coming from the religion side of this, or what is your path to this project? Well, to this project, I started so long ago. I'm trying to remember exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the nature of book projects. Yeah. Yes, they live with us forever. But I do remember very clearly thinking about this idea of sort of arguing in my head against the idea that science and religion, again, both exist institutionally outside of humanity. Just thinking that's that's just so not true, and you can yeah. see it in so many ways. I need a a story. I need something that sort of makes this visible. And for a while, I wanted to write about the Human Genome Project because, mm. frankly, all the rhetoric about unraveling the language of God and all these things, then the people who were involved and who were leading it that were so clearly viewing what they were doing as both secular, scientific and secular, but also a very sort of holy religious purpose to it. Yeah, something sacred and sort of unweaving uh, the human genome, I thought was really amazing. But then I found outer space and there were a lot better pictures. Yeah. That sounds like a lot more fun. Yeah. Uh, Because I just remember seeing, I think it was, gosh, it must have been around the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11, seeing uh, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins talking about their experience. And there were all of these sort of interviews with a lot of the Apollo astronauts and every single one of them had some kind of religious revelation or a spiritual crisis or just had this renewed idea of the sacrality of the earth that was affected them so profoundly. And I thought, well, I think this is what I need to write about. I was thinking about your project in the, well, actually I should say your project really made clear to me something that I've been thinking for a long time. When I read about people who are big enthusiasts of 
human exploration of the solar system, particularly the particularly Mars. Mars gets a lot of mm-hmm. interest. And uh, sometimes when you read essays on, well, we just need to do this in order to make this commercially viable, or we just need to do that in order for this to work, or we need the right spinoff, I start to think this isn't really guiding this project. These are true believers. And I've always used that term, true believers, but I've never really placed it into the context of what you're talking about until now. And I was wondering if you also have or see things in the present moment that connect to this story for you when you read about, I don't know, whether it's NASA or SpaceX or something like that, do you see evidence of these processes still at work? Oh, absolutely. That I was just reading, I don't remember where he was speaking, but Elon Musk, everybody brings up Elon Musk because he has maybe the most articulate vision of both getting to Mars, but also why we need to go. And frankly, his kind of a, uh, apocalyptic vision of that we're going to have, it's pretty dire, mm. uh, we're going to have World War Three. the robots are going to rise up, Siri and Alexa are going to join forces and destroy us all in some fundamental way. Uh, so that he's saying we need to have an escape hatch, basically. We need a safety valve, which he didn't use that phrase, but that's where in thinking about the history of the Western frontier and how it was contextualized or argued for as a safety valve. So he's making the same argument about Mars. But so much of what he was saying echoes, and I think unironically and very sincerely, yeah. uh, exactly the sort of things that Von Braun was saying that, you know, he has this whole argument with the editor of the Christian Century, one of the kind of longest running Christian magazines in the U.S., where Von Braun is kind of accused in the pages of the magazine of building another ark and essentially being carried away by his fantasies of getting to other planets. And Von Braun responds by saying that, you know, this is one of the most important things that we can do as a species, that this is something that is expected of us and we need to be prepared to, when we are called to vacate this planet. And we, you know, unless we want to live in this kind of uh, Malthusian nightmare. <laughs> we need to start building rockets that will get us to other places in the solar system. And I was reading Elon Musk, and then I went back and I reread what Von Braun said. And it's just, they sort of chime off one another. And Musk isn't referencing necessarily the book of revelations but <laughs> i think it's give them time spiritually very similar yeah spiritually very similar Catherine newell thank you so much for talking with me thank you so much this was such a pleasure thank you that's it for today the music was composed by zabrat make sure you check out the time to eat the dogs website for podcast links and other exploration related stuff and if you get the chance please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts it really helps make the show visible to new listeners and if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs that's one word lowercase at gmail.com see you next week <laughs>